This morning's lesson comes from a time in the New Testament history where it seems darkness is more present than light at almost every turn. It's not just a tumultuous time for our Lord, but also for all the religious bodies, even those that are on the wrong side. It's to this point in the Lord's ministry that He has invested a lot of time picking and choosing disciples, it appears. Uh, This would be the group that He would leave the keys to arguably the greatest institution to ever grace the earth and try as He might. This is a ragtag group. At one point, Jesus chooses two men that He affectionately names the sons of thunder. These are probably my people. Mark 3 and verse 17. In another, he nominates one everyone knows comes from a group called the Zealots. This group is known for its extremely far-right stance against the Roman government, believing that even armed rebellion is the word of the day. And he seemingly puts the icing on the cake when he nominates one disciple voted least likely by all Romans to both be popular and a good leader when he chooses a tax collector. Someone not only no one is friends with, but everyone else would have preferred he not even be part of the group to the point where they may have even wished him harm. After all, who loves the tax man? But it's the regular Bible student that reads through this selection process and doesn't even begin to turn heads of curiosity until a decision is made and he reads one particular name. This individual is heads and tails less desirable than all of the previously chosen. And even to this day, we sit here 2,000 years later and there is not one mother among us who will name their child this name because his name is synonymous with grievous sin. His name is Judas. But God choosing the very unqualified and sometimes outright poor leaders doesn't seem to be against His style. To be His spokesman to a stiff-necked people, God would choose a man whose biggest problem was his speech and his confidence in the speech, Exodus 4 and verse 10. He's so fearful, in fact, of his own inadequacies, he has to choose a helper to do his talking. To be his prophet and mouthpiece, direct mouthpiece of God, God chooses a man who, when confronted with God's righteousness, only has this to say of himself. I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah 6 and verse 5. When choosing a nation to be a king of, God himself says when he chooses the Jews, you were of no report, you were not of even hardly a nation, so to speak, if I could paraphrase. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 6 through 8, he says these words exactly, for you were the fewest of all people. To choose a nation, God almost chooses a non-nation. When choosing the strongest man to judge the people of Israel, God chooses a disobedient, unruly, violent womanizer who has illicit relationships with other people and violates the one vow that's of importance of his life, his Nazarite vow, and he places Samson, the strong man, as the head of the Hebrew people, as the judge, Judges chapter 13. And this doesn't say anything of the long lineage of kings which totally destroy the name of God in just about every way. Not the least of which, the first God, the first king that God chooses is is David, not Saul. The people chose Saul. And this man has an adulterous affair and then kills the husband to cover up the resulting pregnancy. However, Judas breaks the mold. Judas sets records, and he has all of them on his shelf for going bad quickly. 
It's not known from the biblical narrative where Judas comes from. There is some speculation about who he is and where he is from based on tradition and his name. Judas's first name is the Greek version of a common Hebrew name, Judah, which if you're thinking sounds a lot like the tribe of Judah, you're exactly right. That's exactly his name. It means praised or celebrated. We learn from Mark chapter 3 and verse 19 and John chapter 13 and verse 26 that his last name might be Iscariot. It's speculative at best, but the Greek name Iscariot means man of Kerioth. It's possible, it's not known for sure, the Bible doesn't delineate this well, but that whenever people were talking about him and his father as Iscariot, what they were doing is introducing the man from Kerioth, which is a town in Judea, which was known for its devout Jews. This would have been a place where good Jews came from and would have been a good person to have on your team if this is where he came from. Very similar today, we will have people when they're announcing you from afar, if you're visiting, they'll say, this is my friend Brian. Uh, he's the best preacher I know from Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, they may not have added the moniker, but, but anyways, you get what I'm saying. If it's true that it means he's from Judea, making him one of the only disciples from this, it would make him one of the only disciples from this lineage of Jews. Josephus writes in one of his works, The Jewish War, of the frequent uprising of the Jews um, and the rebellions of the Jews in Judea, and wrote particularly that this was driven from their devoutness to hold biblical law, to hold fast to what God would have said uh, the Jews should do. How they, uh, how they had a strong national heritage. They had strong biblical customs. This was a devout set of Jewish people that very likely Judas comes from. And this makes a little better sense out of why God would have chosen somebody like this. I mean, after all, if you and I were to see him from good stock, as we might say here in South Georgia, we might would have chosen him too. Apparently, Judas is good with money, or bad with money, I don't know. He'd convince those at least around him that he was good with money. In John, in John chapter 12 and verse 6, it says that he's termed the keeper of the purse. It's not exactly clear either the uh, precise circumstances, as it is with other disciples, where Judas comes to Jesus. But what we do know is that the Scripture is almost immediately spurious of his character. It appears from the prophetic viewpoint, one of the disciples is for sure going to uh, turn over the Messiah, if you will, traitor the Messiah, and take uh, and take him for all he's worth, so to speak. But it doesn't take long for Judas to jump up at the top of the list of names who would probably be the betrayer. But by way of making the first point this morning about Judas, I want to say this. Before we are told of his character flaws, just based on what information we know and what we think we know, there's no reason to ascribe to Judas, Judas's character anything other than just as good as you would have ascribed to all of the other disciples. On first glance, at his face, he seems like a good choice. He comes from an area that we think has devout Jews. This would have been somebody who was sincere. This would have been somebody who was knowledgeable. This would have been somebody who was devout to the cause whenever he studies in Judaism. It starts out that Judas looks a lot like me and you. He comes from good people. He's smart. He's educated. He appears at first glance to be dedicated. I mean, after all, what man decides to just give up his money skills, give up his intelligence, and decide, I'm just going to live free for Jesus. And I'm just going to be dedicated to his cause. Hey, on first glance, I know we know some things about Judas that I haven't gotten to yet, but on first glance, Judas seems like somebody so on fire. There's just one problem. 
You know this. You've heard the story before. He's got a heart issue, and it's one that only the Lord knows about, and it is set on destroying him and the relationships around him. See, we say that Judas had money problems, but that's not actually true. What Judas had was a heart problem. And while most of you cannot faithfully say you struggle with money like Judas did, what most of you can say is that each one of you this morning in your heart knows what it's like to struggle with sin. Each one of you knows that there is this fight that takes place with the temptation to do wrong, and so often you give in to it. I'm not saying you're consumed as Judas was consumed, but I am saying you understand intimately what it's like to know to do the right thing and then directly not do it. You understand what it's like to be tempted and to fall prey to it, even by the things that you desire in your own life. And the most likely thing that's true between you and Judas this morning is that the set of sins or sin that has set you back is more similar to Judas than you'd probably care to admit because like Judas, you keep yours a secret. Slowly but surely, you can feel this problem growing in your heart. And maybe you're even just a lot more like Judas than you'd hoped you were and you continue coming to church and hanging around the Lord knowing that even though you are near Jesus, you are spiritually miles from Jesus. Maybe you come to church on Sunday morning, perhaps not always to Bible class. Maybe you don't even always come to worship when you know you should. You're here this morning and that's certainly good. But most of all, you know this. You're sitting where you sit this morning and you're in a spiritual rut. Things are not right. And you know they haven't been right for a while. And you know the pain and the apathy that led you to the seat you're in. But more than like, you're more than like Judas than you'd ever imagined you're willing to be. And you're not willing to get up and make it right. I wonder if you've ever thought of Judas like I have thought of Judas. And maybe you've even said in your head when you heard this traitorous story, this thieving story, and you asked yourself, why would you steal from Jesus when He's just right there? You're, just, you're with Him. How could you possibly take from the Lord? Didn't he know all he had to do was just look at Jesus? Didn't he know all he had to do was go talk to Jesus? And Jesus could have made it right, could he not? Jesus could have worked the problem out in Judas's life. He could have healed the sin that was tearing him apart. You and I were quick to jump on Judas's back and point out that he was a thief and a traitor. And sure enough, you're right, he was. But have you stopped to think for a moment that the exact same sin that separates you and I from the Lord is the exact same parent sin that Judas struggled with. I can hardly imagine though, I can hardly imagine what it would be like to go to Judgment Day. You've stood next to the Lord, not just for a year, maybe you've stood next to the Lord in His ministry for three years. You're like Judas. You sat with Him. You ate supper with the Lord. You worked for Him, yet there's just this one thing you needed to do and you let it slip by and you wouldn't so much as talk about that thing with the one to whom it matters. You and I know that the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us of our sins and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And maybe you have found yourself in the pew this morning, not coming one year, but maybe coming 13 years, perhaps never even so little as three years. But your problem is that you're still right where you were when you started, or worse, you're behind the starting line because you've failed to grow. Let me tell you, church, this morning, that you cannot, absolutely cannot be the spiritual runt 
of the pack and be upset about anything Judas ever did. You cannot not mature in church. You cannot continue in the sin in which you have started. You cannot not be better next year than you were this year and be upset in any way with Judas because it is the exact same sin that he himself was in trouble for. See, you walk with the Lord, but do you talk with the Lord is the problem. It's not that things get better when they're ignored either. You know a little bit about the story of Judas, don't you? We know from John chapter 12 and verse 6 that it's not long after Judas' heart is hardened, working and walking alongside the Lord and never addressing the conversation that needed to be addressed, at least insofar as the biblical text is concerned. And Judas is now stealing from the benevolence the people have directly paid to Jesus. I don't know what this looks like. I can't imagine how this all happens, how this must have been something like the widows and the people who just had this amazing miracle just happened to them and they're so thankful and they're saying, what can we do? Can we, can we give you some of our money? I mean, there were some very wealthy people that interacted with Jesus and I'd be willing to bet that some of them were like, let me just give you some money for your ministry. This is the most amazing thing. And I can almost see as it seems natural that it would be that, that Jesus is approached with this. I can imagine this happened time and time again and I can hear Jesus' words saying, take it to Judas. He's the keeper of our money. He's always done well. And then directly, Judas takes the money and takes some of it for himself and perhaps leaves little or none in the purse. I can't help but think how this didn't start out this way. I mean... Those of you who have ever done anything wrong before, you know the first time, it's a little exhilarating, a little worrisome, a little, you're scared, you're, you're nervous, but, but that's not the picture I'm seeing of Judas. Like, this has been going for some time. It's like he doesn't even get excited anymore. This got worse. I can imagine, I can imagine Judas's thoughts. Maybe along and along, his thoughts were not different than our thoughts whenever we think we're owed something or we deserve something for our work. I... I can almost hear Judas say something like, you know, I work for free so many hours for Jesus. And I bet he did. I bet he did. I, I put in so much effort. I deserve some of this. Or maybe, or maybe Judas uses one of our tried and true excuses here. God would want me to be happy. You think he ever said that to himself? We know it gets worse because we see Judas shortly uh, begin to get angry whenever he is not enabled to sin. There was a time in the biblical text where a jar of ointment that uh, uh, was fairly expensive, at least, at least in the, the biblical text says it was, is broken over the feet of Jesus. And Judas sees that this has gone to waste, and he is so far sunk into his sin that this is what he says, and by the way, remember who he addresses this to when he says in John chapter 12 and verse 5, Lord... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The text tells us, the very text tells us that he wasn't upset, that it wasn't some righteous work done with it. You know what he was upset about? His sin had so far gone that he saw every lost opportunity to steal as a loss against himself. He said he was selfish, and it was his selfish gain that got him in this thing. What Judas, what Judas felt was no doubt a problem that he thought to himself I'm not affecting anyone else but myself. But what he didn't realize is that he was so far gone in his rut of sin that he is now affecting the whole body. He is accusing the Lord Himself of not being righteous enough. If you can possibly imagine doing that to the God Himself incarnate. 
And isn't this exactly how sin affects me and you 2,000 years later? It's not, it's not just that we sin and we don't seek a remedy from the Lord. That's part of the problem. The second point I want to make to you this morning is that sometimes our lives look more like the life of Judas than we could possibly ever have imagined. When now, just like Judas, we have the same tendency to let our spiritual rot grow through our members and infect other people. It's, it's at this time when you know you're struggling spiritually, but you refuse to fight your sin. It's at this time when you know what is right, but you watch yourself continually fail, and worse still, to the point where you now no longer feel ashamed over the sin that you once believed you would never have done. When you allow your inner struggle to go untended to, when you bury it, you let it fester over, and you're unwilling to face it any longer, you find yourself on what I call the Judas path. Where it doesn't seem to be so bad at first, I mean, maybe you even have some justifications for the things that you've done wrong, but you find yourself increasingly more bitter, and step by step, you find yourself into more sin and more struggle, and doing things you never thought that you would be involved with. Long past are the days where you were sacrificing, and now you are self-serving. This is the... This is the you who last year told yourself, I'm going to do better this year about reading my Bible. But if we fast forward to current time, you're not any better. You, you perhaps are worse. This is the you where you told yourself at the beginning of this year, I'm going to pray more than just at meals. And maybe you've even found yourself forgetting to pray at meals, much less praying more. Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you don't even feel bad about it anymore. Maybe the rut you're in has taken away even the shame that you might feel. Judas is a lot more like 21st century Christians than I think most of us would feel comfortable admitting, isn't he? But do you know what I know? After studying the story of Judas, I think it's worse than that. I mean, you mean, Brian, it's going to be, it's worse than, 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 than giving up our Savior to the point of the cross at 30, uh, for 30 pieces of I actually do think that sometimes what we do today is worse than that. You know why? Because Christians sell Jesus for less than 30 pieces of silver all the time. Yeah, they do it all the time. I don't know that, I don't know that if you were there, you might would have, that would have been your problem where you, would have, where you would have loved money so much you would have given him up to be killed like that. But what I do know is that first of all, my sin and your sin, we put him on the cross. We would have done something. We would have done something. If not that, we would have done something. I never accuse Adam and Eve of being so awful. If it hadn't have been them, it would have probably been me. And the truth is, it's true of you as well. It's true of you as well. And let's also not call sin something so light. We have the way of whitewashing sin, making it seem so better. Listen, sin is not just a bad judgment call. Sin is not just an error. It may be that, but more often than not, sin is when you know you ought to be doing right and you choose the opposite. That's what sin is. Let's just call it like it is. Sin is not a nice or a pretty thing. It's times when you know, when you know you need to be in Bible class, but for 45 minutes or perhaps an hour, you waste it doing what? Sleeping in, watching a video, complaining about something that doesn't exist. It's the times when you're on vacation, both from the Lord and from the church. When you know you can return to maybe the 1,000 churches on the way home from vacation, but you say, we'll just take the Lord's Supper when we get home. 
Maybe it is a money problem. Maybe it is exactly like Judas, that you sell Jesus something for less than 30 shekels of silver. I'm afraid that if the Lord blessed us the way that we give to the Lord, some of us would walk out of the doors and wouldn't even have as many blessings as could fit in the thimble of a sower. And if you don't know what that fits like, you could barely see it if I was holding one up here. Some of your employers have given you a raise. Did Jesus get a raise? Some of you have come into some money. Did Jesus get any part of that? Had it even crossed your mind? 30 pieces of silver, 30 shekels, the text says, is what Judas was willing to betray Jesus for. Roughly, in Roman terms, that was four months of wage. Given inflation, it purchases a whole lot, whole lot more then than it, does, than it does now. But some of you sell the Lord short for just a few minutes of garbage on your cell phone. Some sell the Lord short for something that costs a whole lot less than four months of working. Your cell phone may have cost you four months of wage, but I bet you spent four months walking away from the Lord by enjoying it more than you enjoy the Lord. Some of you say, oh, I got my Bible with me, it's on my phone, and having never opened the app once in the week. Oh, but I bet you opened that phone more than once a week. You might even have opened it more than once during this sermon. Some sell the Lord with cheap excuses, far less than 30 shekels. We're tired. We're busy. I don't like the way this is going. I don't like this setup. I don't enjoy it. I'm not getting anything from it. Some sell the, short, the Lord short. Here's an unbelievable one for a game. A game. Above the Lord's three hours a week if you're the most righteous among us. But you're going to spend hours and hours and hundreds of dollars traveling to these sports events all while sacrificing the Lord's one hour on Sunday morning. Could you imagine, could you imagine showing up on Judgment Day and going, but Lord, I wasn't there because I had a sport to attend. Could you imagine? You couldn't imagine it. You could not imagine it. You're not a sane person that thinks you're going to show up on Judgment Day and go, here's my excused absence, Lord. I had a sport to attend. Craziest thing we'll ever think, but we think it all the time. We think it all the time. I wonder if when we get to Judgment Day, the throne room of all the garbage that we've sold Jesus for, could you possibly say any of them are worth it? I mean, look what Judas does. Lord, uh, it was worth letting my children dress, act, and look just like the world. I know you couldn't tell a lick of difference between them when they're together because they look just like them. They dress just like them. They use the same words just like them. But Lord, it was worth it because my kids fit in and they had fun and it was better for them. I mean, yeah, they didn't remain faithful when they grew up, but hey, this was better. Lord, it was really worth it by not raising my children the way that I should because it was so much more fun being their friend. Lord, it was worth it. It was worth it. Do these, do these statements sound like insanity coming out of my mouth? Because it is. Because it is. How about this one? Lord, it was worth it to indulge in this alcoholic beverage or this sinful activity. I mean, after all, I got money. I, and I get drunk. I'm getting drunk, Lord. It was worth it. It was worth it. You can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. But for some reason, we wake up. We completely pretend 
like the lives that we lead, that look exactly like the world, look no different than the world in any measurable way, is somehow going to be acceptable to the Lord on Judgment Day. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. If you and I do not act, think, do differently than the world, we are not different than the world. Period. End of story. And perhaps, perhaps this morning, this is where Judas actually has you beat. At least, at least when it's all said and done, Judas is so sorry that his sorrow, worldly at least in nature, overwhelms him to the point of action. It's the wrong action, I agree. But there's no arguing the point that Judas cannot live with the things he's done and he does something about it. We know from the biblical text, Judas hangs himself and final, in his final act of self-pity and sorrow comes to a very logical realization of a life that lives outside of Christ. Sinful. So strange that he would do this having lived right next to the Lord for so many years. But here's where it is. Judas might have Christians beat today because there are Christians that repeatedly, continually come in and waste hours of their lives in church when they know, they know that the thing that they need to do is get right with the Lord. They know every time they come in here, they know they need to get right with the Lord. They perhaps feel it, they perhaps know it, they think it, and yet whenever the invitation song is sung, that it's only a step. They refuse to make any changes. Maybe Judas has you beat. Is that not crazy? It's only a step. We could have told that to Judas, but Judas took a step. It was the wrong step, but he took a step. The end of this life without Jesus is so much worse than what Judas suffered during this life. What happens after this life is the type of permanent that makes that old tattoo that you cover up look like a fresh thing. It's the type of permanent that no amount of scrub is going to make it come off. A life lived outside of Jesus while in the walls of His church just works death. And its end, its resolution, is a life permanently lived outside of the gates of heaven with no possible way to enter. So let me ask you this morning in conclusion, would you be willing to at least do it better than Judas? Oh yeah, I know Judas, he's a rotten character, I know. But if you're so much better than he is, if you're, if you're such a better Christian than he, he would have been, if you do things better, would you be willing to repent this morning? Would you be willing to do even at all better than Judas? Let me tell you what success looks like. If you don't repent this morning, if you don't get it right this morning, you're in the same boat as Judas is. You know, you know, you know. You know exactly who you are. I don't know who you are. I'm just preaching to the, to the audience here. But you know and I know that the one thing that you need to do to not be like Judas is you know that you need to come forward and you know that you need prayer or you know that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but something has stopped you so long that you're now in a worse place than Judas was who was the ultimate betrayer of Jesus. Can you imagine yourself being that person? If you can't, then you need to come forward. If there's any way this morning that we can help you, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing?